Welcome, ghouls, ghosts, and especially all you slashers out there. Grab your hockey masks, maybe a machete, and you'll definitely need a drink for this one, because some motherfucking heads are about to roll. It's a chilly, rainy night here in Northern Virginia. Absolutely perfect for this discussion. That's right, so everyone listening, roll up a joint. Put on the shortest shorts you could possibly wear and get ready to get sexually promiscuous because we're taking you to Camp Crystal Lake. That's right, baby. And Loisos, I got to ask you, I mean, I know for a fact, but I have to have our listeners understand this as well. When were you first introduced to the Friday the 13th franchise? I saw the original Friday the 13th on television. I can't remember which channel was showing it, but I instantly fell in love with the movie, but I did not see many of the sequels until much, much later. Uh, actually, just a few years ago when I watched through the entire series for the very first time. I think I had seen up to part four uh, before you and I met, and you were like, Loisos. Well, I wasn't Loisos at the time. Brian, you said, that just won't do. You're going to have to watch all of them. So we did. We went through the entire series, and that's what we're going to do on the Epic Film Guys podcast. Besides, this month, we are going to go through and review each of the Friday the 13th movies, starting with this retrospective episode. This series, for me, has always been the equivalent of a cinematic comfort food. Many a night's out to the bar, and you know, I had only this to come home to. It was almost always the perfect way to end a date and on many occasions to woo the ladies i'm telling you right now these movies were absolutely magic when put in a certain circumstance you old dog you yeah i'm telling you i won't get as in depth as i have with you in person out with bar talk and the like but let's just say myself in this franchise we're, we're pretty close in those regards. And also, I have to say, if I was asked the question, what is your favorite or, uh, you know, what what makes you feel comfort out of what what horror franchise? It would have to be this one uh, above all, even above Nightmare or Halloween. I mean, all of them have at least one or two movies that are iconic or special to me. But this series overall is, is where it's at for me. So Friday the 13th. And I did not come to this series at a super young age. The first time I had ever watched a Friday the 13th movie. And I know I've mentioned this on the show many occasions was at my friend Chad's house. Uh, he and his brother Chris and I rented a VHS of one of the Friday films. And we watched it on a Friday night when we were smoking up bongs and blunts and joints and, you know, what you did when you were a teenager. And that's really what introduced me. And years later, I am a huge Friday the 13th fan, so I'm super excited, and I'm really hoping you guys are excited to listen to this with us. We have to start off, Loisos, with the one that started it all, the one that is celebrating its 40th anniversary, Sean Cunningham's Friday the 13th. That's right, Justin. Now, for those of you who don't know, although I'm sure most of you who are listening knows the the basic setup of the Friday the 13th movies, but the original. We're talking about the original here. So the story centers around the legend of Camp Crystal Lake, where uh, little Jason Voorhees drowned while his camp counselors, who were supposed to be watching him, were off uh, copulating, 
fornicating, having relations, if you will. Uh, And the tragedy was followed by a string of mysterious murders that were never solved. Now, the story picks up years later when the camp is set to reopen and a new group of counselors is stalked and killed off one by one by an unknown assailant that makes their Friday the 13th very unlucky indeed. Now, Justin, I got to throw it to you to talk a little bit about the genesis of this movie, how the idea came about, because you are the expert on all this, man. You've delved into the documentaries, you've poured over (laughs) texts, and uh, you've done your research, man. So tell me about Sean S. Cunningham and how he got the idea for Friday the 13th. Well, he had previously worked with Wes Craven as a producer on The Last House on the Left. So this wasn't his first entry into horror. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He was basically trying to get his directing career off the ground. And after John Carpenter's Halloween, he had the idea to basically rip it the fuck off. And he was the first one to take advantage of that, which, you know, when I think I think back to that time period, it took them, you know, a good couple of years for anyone to actually attempt to do so. I know it took a while for Halloween to kind of, you know, ignite and become a gigantic independent hit that it became. But it still shocks me to this day that it took almost two years, you know, for for, for someone to to pick up on that. Hey, look, independent movie cost three hundred and twenty thousand dollars to make and made fucking, you know. Billions and not billions, but you know what I'm saying? Now it has, but millions and millions of dollars. So, so he had, had worked with Wes Craven on that, uh, and he was inspired by Carpenter's Halloween, and he wanted Friday the 13th to be shocking, uh, visually stunning, and make you jump out of your seat. Those are his words. And he also wanted to kind of distance himself from the likes of The Last House on the left, that style of the more gritty, uh, realistic type of horror. He wanted it to be a roller coaster ride. So comes in Victor Miller, writer, and the guy that basically right now, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to blame anyone for lack of new Friday the 13th materials, movies of the such, uh, you can blame this guy because he came in a few years ago and started a a class action lawsuit against Sean Cunningham for, for more ownership over Friday the 13th, because guess what? It is one of the most profitable franchises in movie history. I mean, this shit's on lunchboxes. It's on ball caps, socks, underwear, you name it. There's a fucking Friday the 13th onesie, Louis saw. So, I mean, at this point in time, there's products for this thing. Everyone, the guy wants more money out of it. So he, you know, all that aside, just, just listen. That's why we're not getting anything new from this franchise. But he came in to write the script and Together with Sean Cunningham, they put together an idea, and that idea was Friday the 13th. They just had a title, and one of the most iconic things about this film is the fact that they created an ad. They spent the money to put an ad in Variety. They didn't have a story. They didn't have a script. They didn't have any characters. They just had a title, and they put the iconic Friday the 13th ad in Variety promoting this movie. and. Within weeks, the tagline of the most terrifying film ever made from the producer of Last House on the Left comes Friday the 13th. They had their backers and they went off to make their little movie. And then, of course, we know what the end result was. For virtually no money, right? Like (laughs) 
extremely low budget production. Oh yeah, it was extremely low budget. I'm I'm pretty sure it wasn't as low budget as John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, I did attempt to look and find the exact number of the budget, but I was unable to do so. But yeah, extremely low budget. I mean, think about it. You got zero stars, really. You have an aging star that you cast in the movie. You only need one big name. You know, they're going verbatim, you know, within the the Halloween kind of uh, the way that they made that movie. Get one big notable star and then get a bunch of young kids to kill off as camp counselors. Set it in a remote location. Think, I mean, honestly, how expensive would it have to be to rent a camp? Not very expensive. Mostly so, shoot it in the woods. Yeah. yeah. And where they shoot sh- in the woods, where they shot this film is uh, Blairstown, New Jersey, which is this tranquil. Well, par- partially in Blairstown, New Jersey, which um, is this tranquil little town. It literally takes you 30 seconds to drive down its ma- little main street. And uh, and the other part of it was shot at uh, Camp Nobe Bosco. Which was a, which is still a real Boy Scout camp in the mountains of Hardwick, New Jersey. Uh, yep. It's it's private property, but you and I were able to visit recently. Do you want to talk about uh, two, that? Well, we might as well while we're there. I mean, on two different occasions. Um, when I attended Camp Blood last summer at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater in Lehighton, Pennsylvania, uh, shout out to them. The literally the best drive-in theater on the fucking planet. Um, if you haven't ever heard of it before, watch the at the drive in documentary. It'll tell you everything you need to know. Um, we love going every single year. We talk about it on the show a lot, but only an hour away is Blairstown. And I decided to go last year and check out the camp. And I knew that it was kind of weird and wonky because um, some people have been charging a lot of money for fans to go stay the night there. They're doing like fan events, but like extremely overpriced. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to go and walk in. And the time that I went by myself, uh, I went and I was chased out by an old motherfucker wearing a camp hat with a little kid sitting next to him on that golf cart screaming at me. He's calling the cops. So I got chased out. Um, but a couple months later, we went back to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater for Freddy Fest. Loisos. And then I kind of told you we had to do what? We had to go have breakfast at the Blairstown Diner as seen in Friday the 13th, part one. And you had to see the camp. That's right. So we weren't expecting much, I guess we were expecting like the gate to be closed or whatever, but we got there and it was wide open. There was no one around. So we, we did, we did go in, we did get our picture in front of, actually we, we had to at, we had to ask permission essentially because there was another, there was another car who, um, it was the up, same was old the same, fucking bastard that booted me out like two months before there. Well, if, hopefully they're not listening <laughs> to this, but anyway, so we had to ask very nicely, I think, because you were, you know, he knew he was in the presence of the God of podcasting that he would allow us to bow s- the fuck down. Uh, motherfucker. That's right. That he would um, allow us to take our picture in front of the lake. So it's, you know, it's on my Instagram, the picture of me in front of the, uh, in front of the lake is very picturesque, very beautiful uh, fall day. But anyhow, so very beautiful location, but also a little bit spooky, not only because you know what took place there, you connect that location to Friday the 13th and horror movies, but also 
it's a genius location to set a horror film in the first place because uh, you're in the middle of nowhere and you don't know what's lurking behind those trees. You don't know what's out there in the wilderness. Anything could happen, especially if you're a camp counselor with no adult supervision, no authority figures around. You're going to get into some mischief and you might get into some danger. 100%. And I have to tell you, when you say in the middle of nowhere, you've seen it firsthand. The drive from Blairstown out to that camp, it's legit at the middle of a dead end road. And it's like the second road before the road ends. And there's like no civilization at all whatsoever. There's a couple of ponds, you know, you see some cabins here and there. And even the second time I went, even though we drove all the way up, it was a little bit different. The first time I went, the gate was closed. So I had to park out in front of it and I had to like trek all the way into the camp until I saw the lake, until I saw the cabins. And that's when I got booted. But and it was we should- so scary. It was fucking spooky as shit, dude, because all you could hear was silence and you have no idea. You're like, oh, my God, dude, this is this is where it all began. You know, it's a, it's a it's a crazy feeling when you experience that. Absolutely. And when I watched the movie again recently for this discussion, I really enjoyed that added layer of, hey, I've been there before. It was kind of neat. And we should also mention, just in case anyone from Nobe Bosco happens to be listening to this, we appreciate you being kind to us, not calling the cops on us, and allowing us to take that picture. (laughs) Also, um, I want to shout out to you that I made the mistake of not bribing you. Had I bribed you, you probably would have been like, oh, yeah, go ahead and go around all the grounds because all you care about is money. Um, That's fine. Totally cool and all. But (laughs) I got to be the dick. The movie itself, though, we have to get to this because that's why we're here, Loisos. And this movie, make no mistake, if you're a fan of horror films, especially 80s horror films, and in my case, my favorite genre is slashers. We wouldn't have the term slasher. We wouldn't have the genre of the slasher without Friday the 13th. Its legacy will stand up tall and above all others until the end of time because of what it did for the genre. Now, make no mistake, John Carpenter's Halloween is extremely influential in this case, and we wouldn't have anything without that. Anything. Literally anything. Um, But what Friday the 13th decided to do was set the bar even higher. Look what they did. Suspense, subtlety. We're going to fucking blow this shit out of the water. We're going to get Tom Savini, who was in actual war, who knows how to do these extremely gruesome makeup effects. We're going to make the kills. Fresh off of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. We're going to make the kills so outlandish and so terrifying and so grotesque that the audience won't be able to look away. You know, we're going to we're going to do have a who done it. You know, there's going to be a huge mystery aspect to this film, which up until that point, um, you know, wasn't kind of as, as as familiar with the genre as it became after this. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about the first Friday the 13th is the fact that it is kind of a mystery, because when the film opens up and you have that first kill. I mean, if pop culture spoiled it for you, I'm sorry. But when this movie was first released and audiences were sitting in those theater seats opening night, you had no idea who the killer was. In a way, the audience is the killer (laughs) because a technique that they they kind of cribbed from the first Halloween. I mean, make no mistake, uh, Cunningham has has got on record and said that he 
he cribbed a lot from from Halloween. So well, he cribbed that from Halloween, and Halloween cribbed it from Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Sure, and plenty of other movies. So certainly, yes. but um, it's used it's used to pretty remarkable effect. Here is is the voyeuristic camera work. Uh, because the identity of the killer is kept a mystery throughout, nearly all of the chase and kill sequences are from a first-person perspective. So it put the audience right in the killer's point of view and gave them the bloodlust that they so craved at this period of time. I mean, you have to think back to a time when, I mean, post-John Carpenter's Halloween, nothing really major came out. I mean, we had already had The Shining that year, um, but in terms of the shocking kind of horror, this was, this was a new thing for the genre. Like, and I'm sure that it nailed it perfectly for those teenage audiences that were going to go out on a Friday night and check out this kind of movie. And that's why it became so popular. I mean, literally every single horror movie that came after this movie aped this movie. Um, this was the first time in America, at least that we saw this kind of, of gore of blood, of makeup effects this way and used so brutally and used so me in a mean, such a mean spirited fashion. Um, you know, Moise also and I have to give a huge shout out, of course, to the Giallo film, which came way before this, um, you know, obviously heavily inspired so many American horror films, um, that many people didn't know about because those films weren't necessarily playing in American cinemas during that time period. And a lot of people back then weren't as open to foreign films as they are now. So, you know, the Italians, we have everything that we have to, we have them to thank for it in a way. But, um, this would be, you know, took all of those elements and put it into one package and made, you know, an extremely enjoyable movie, a roller coaster ride, as Sean Cunningham himself said. Uh, that being said, I'll just be completely honest with you. I think I appreciate the first Friday the 13th voice off more than I actually really like it myself. Um, there are a lot of elements that work really well. I appreciate it. I enjoy it. But I think out of all the movies we're going to be talking about tonight, it may be one of my least favorite. It's boring. Whoa, dude, you went there. You went there. <laughs> we're here to, oh my God, I'm going to put Betsy Palmer's fucking image on the graphic for this episode. And you legit just said it's boring. No. Okay. Let, let me, let me rephrase. It is probably on the lower end of the franchise for me in terms of entertainment value. Because at times, the pace is very plotting. Um, for example, there's a scene in which the, 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 the young teens, the young uh, counselors, play Monopoly for like 25 minutes. <laughs> actually, they're playing strip, they're actually, strip yes, Monopoly. Forgive me. It's Strip yeah. Monopoly, which I'm not even sure how that would work, how you would play Strip Monopoly. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, there's another scene where Alice, uh, played by Adrienne King makes coffee and the scene shows every single solitary step that's required to make a pot of coffee. <laughs> and I feel like when I'm watching it, I'm like, I feel like I could use some coffee right now. There's a huge reason. Why it's boring. Dude, there's a huge reason why Sean Cunningham only ended up directing a few more films after this. Um, you know, he did, he, he, he did some other teen movies um, and the like. But he never he, he was more of a producer and he made his whole fortune off of Friday the 13th. So he was a smart guy and knowing what was hot and kind of going with it. I think the film is very competently directed and I think it's very effective. I think it's for the time, very scary. 
I mean, you have to think back within, you know, the time frame in which it was made. And a lot of times when I was growing up, I'd watch stuff that would scare me. But now when I would watch it, it's not, I love horror, so it's not going to scare me in the same way. But I can see where audiences would be terrified by this. It was something new and fresh, something oh, completely sure. different. You know, just like when torture porn started to be a thing with Saw and then Hostel, those movies were terrifying audiences as well. So anytime something new and fresh comes along, people want to hop onto it and, it, you know, it's, it starts a trend. And it started the trend of my favorite subgenre of all time. Um, yes, you, I'm not trying to disparage the movie i'm not trying to well, diminish I'm not either i'm not trying to diminish its impact um but there there are long stretches of the movie in which very little of interest happens the movie really has many iconic elements that we'll i'm sure we'll get to but really it's it it really takes off in its third act that's yeah, the third act it makes you wait and maybe they were thinking in terms of suspense of buildup, you know, like I said, this was a new thing. This was a new territory. So there wasn't like a playbook in which how did they needed to do this by. And I think they did a pretty good job. The sequels fare way better because they, they start, you know, realizing what to do to move the story along. Give us a kill here and there. The whole give a kill every 15 minutes. That wasn't the rule yet. So um, I think one of the most important things to discuss here, um, Betsy Palmer as Pamela Voorhees. Uh, being the killer, the killer not being spoilers, unveiled. dude, listen, <laughs> if they're going to click out a graphic for Friday the 13th, if you've watched fucking scream, all right, you already know. Unfortunately, that's why I said earlier on, you know, if you'd seen this movie back upon the date that it was released, it'd be different. But everyone kind of knew, like, dude, before I even saw the first Friday the 13th, I had seen scream. Okay, so I already knew going into it that Jason wasn't the killer. Um, you know, that was kind of, you know, thanks, Kevin Williamson, for that one. But it's um, I think it's a, a brilliant casting move. You had Betsy Palmer, who up until that point only played squeaky clean characters. You introduce this old motherly grandmotherly like character into the story. So when she pops up, you're like, oh, a comfort moment. Like, oh, my God, she's going to save this girl. Wow, you know, a sigh of relief. And then she ends up being the psychotic, crazy fucking bitch that's been killing all these motherfuckers. Um, because, you know, however many years beforehand, the camp counselors there allowed her son Jason to drown. Because, as you said earlier on, perfectly, they were too busy sticking each other in their holes and <laughs> doing naughty things to each other and not paying attention. And it was Jason's birthday. And they let that kid drown like they didn't care. So she's out for vengeance. And I love that. That's something that even even today you still don't see. You don't see like, you know, the motherly figure as as the killer. Everything is like the spooky, crazy or the giant menacing killer. And she's just, you know, this old bitch wearing a sweater. Yeah, no, it is. It is unexpected, certainly, as you as you put it, imagine sitting in the audience in, in the year 1980, not having a clue and being shocked by that twist. Um, you kind of have to suspend a little bit of disbelief because there's one point where she throws a whole body through a, a dead body through a window. And you look at Betsy Palmer and you're like, could, could she actually do that? Does she have the strength to do that? Hey, man, you don't know how many deadlifts and squats and, you know, fucking bench presses she was doing 
There's no idea. You have no idea. There's also it's entirely possible. There's also parts where you see the the killer's hands and they have like you know hairy knuckles or whatever. But well, that's Tonto. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, <laughs> looking past all of that, you have this actress known for kind of these demure, kind of good natured characters. And she is completely terrifying because she is comforting. You do want to run into her arms at first. And on a dime, she turns. And it's a great performance from Palmer, who she really dove into the psychology of this character. She really wanted to understand this character because she's a trained actor. As she said uh, in interviews, like she's of the Stanislavski method of understanding your character and, and, using that worldview and that mindset of the character to inform your decisions as an actor. So she really delved into who Mrs. Voorhees was. What was her backstory? What is her motivation? And her motivation is that she needed a new car. (laughs) Well, that was her motivation for signing (laughs) on to the (laughs) role. I I, I love, I love God rest your soul. I I, I so, no, 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 100%. And I so, Regret not taking the opportunity to meet her when I had the opportunity. Um, such a sweet woman, um, you know, knowing that when she was offered the role, she's like, I don't do horror. How dare you? And she's like, I need a new fucking car. Oh, this will buy me a new car. Fuck it. I'll do it. You know, like a week and a half worth of shooting. I get to beat up on this young girl and whatever and stare into the camera with evil eyes. 100%. Like, what's easier than that? Yeah, and uh, but she she eventually did kind of come around on the character and what her character meant to people. Even though initially she would say things like, "Oh, that movie's a piece of shit," <laughs> she literally she would literally say that. Um, but no, her her character's motivation because what what I find fascinating and what we talked about actually on the Gladiator episode recently is villains that you understand. Do I really support Mrs. Voorhees' decision to go around murdering innocent teenagers who really had nothing to do with the death of her son? No. But can I understand it? Do I understand why she snapped and why she's so... Like, this this woman is so hurt by the death of her son that she wants to take revenge. She wants to avenge her son. And you get it. So, is it the most complex character? No. But you understand her. And that's crucial to the movie working at least for me and i feel like for so many other horror fans um do you do you think the character would have been better served had she been introduced earlier into the film because i heard that they had written scenes for mrs Voorhees to appear earlier on but they couldn't afford betsy palmer for that long in the production to film those scenes I'm so glad that she came in when she did because it was that surprise moment that makes the film so special. Um, You just have to think how much it would have been spoiled if you would have already been thinking in your head, oh, it could be that lady. Oh, it could be that lady. When the whole rest of the movie, without her involvement or her inclusion, I should say, you don't know who's doing this. And that's why I love this movie for what it kind of what it created. The whole whodunit thing. Literally, you're sitting there at the edge of your seat like, I have no idea why this person's killing these kids or who it is. What's the reasoning behind this? And then when you finally get there and you get the Pamela Voorhees character introduced, I'm sure a lot of the audience members are like, oh, my God, could it be this lady? When you have that sense of doubt there, but you also are possibly thinking it could be the killer. Imagine the excitement you have as the viewer. 
that's what makes this movie so special. And again, I don't think any other movie was able to do this after the fact, the way that this movie did it, because it did it so perfectly. Um, you know, the serial killer turned out to be somebody's mother, a murderer whose only motivation was love for her child. Uh, Victor Miller himself said he took motherhood and turned it on its head. And he think it was he thought it was for great fun. You know, what would happen to you if your kid was killed in front of you due to such bullshit negligence? I mean, it it really does make you feel for Pamela Voorhees. And then when you see her and Adrian King's character, Alice, which we have to get to Alice right now, we have to talk about Alice because she is our final girl. Um, you're, you're rooting for Alice. You're like, I want her to win. I think aside from Betsy Palmer's inclusion here, I, I think Adrian King is absolutely fantastic in this movie. Uh, I think she's a great heroine. And I also think she's a great final girl here. Um, she has the perfect look for a late seventies, early eighties movie. Um, she's beautiful, but she's the girl next door, very much a Laurie Strode type. Uh, and you, and you feel for her. You definitely do. I mean, she's the one that you're, you're, you're basically ending up with at the end of the movie rooting for. And I, and again, I go back to this. You have to have a good final girl. And this series has lots of hits, but it also has some misses in terms of their final girls or their, their final person that you're supposed to be rooting for. And I, Alice, you know, kind of set the bar outside of a Laurie Strode or, you know, a Nancy from a Nightmare on Elm Street that came many years later. Uh, what do you think of Alice's character? What do you think of Adrian King's performance in the film? You really took all the words that I was going to say out of my mouth. I think she is terrific. And I understand why she's a fan favorite. Instantly, you're attached to her. You're attached to her character. And she's a sweetheart. She's just such a sweetheart, her character. And that comes across in her performance. This film also introduces another fan favorite character, Crazy Ralph, the town You're crazy. You're all doomed. You're all doomed. This place is cursed. It's a death curse. <laughs> crazy <laughs> Ralph is one of the best characters ever created in cinematic history. Um, I mean, you can't beat Crazy Ralph. He builds the mythic nature of the story even further. The whole, oh, you don't know what happened at this camp. And the fact that he goes all the way the fuck out there on his bike just to spook them. And then also, he's 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 the red herring. You don't know if he maybe he's the guy out there killing could as well. Be. So, could be. You know, I like that that aspect, you know. And uh, he's great, great dresser, the fucking bucket hat and the vest and everything. And he rides that bike like he's, yeah, he's like the Wicked Witch of the West out there. He, he, he has this aura about him where you're not totally sure if he's in on it or not and you're like man this guy this guy could be doing the killing himself the cop comes out now originally in the script and the original idea was to put the kids at a place where no authority could be and it was a last minute decision to have the police officer come out to in parentheses check on crazy ralph because he was he had heard he came out to the camp to harass the kids which he did and create some good scare moments as he was there um so you don't necessarily know for sure. Also, I think adding the cop is actually good because then it, to the audience, you're like, oh, OK, the cops are there. Uh, maybe this isn't so bad. So when the bad shit starts happening, you're like, oh, my God, it's even worse. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Now, we've talked about characters. We got to move on to the score. The Harry Manfredini's classic fucking score. I like to describe it as. Bernard Herrmann, yep. Psycho, yep. mixed with Jaws. Yep. 
There you go. There it is. <laughs> Pretty much. There it is. Bum 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 bum. Bum 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 bum. Bum 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 bum. Bum 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 bum. One of the most bombastic and entertaining scores. I own literally every single compact disc version of all the Friday the 13th scores because. And every track is the same. <laughs> almost always. Not necessarily, though. They're high strings, super high strings, and low bass. Well, when we get to part three, I'll fucking I'll bet you on that that you're wrong. But um, no, it's great. I, I love it. I think it's perfect. And up until this point, again, something totally different. At this time, horror films were going for completely minimalistic synthesizer scores, which I love. Synth scores are my favorite thing in the entire world, even today. But he brought in. It, it sounds cheap. It's a cheap orchestra, but it's still an orchestra. You hear some full strings in there. Um, definitely aping a little Bernard Herman there and definitely aping a little bit of John Williams jaws in there. But I think, I think it's great. Dude, seriously, some of the moments in this movie would be nowhere near as effective without Manfredini's score. Absolutely. Well, Justin, you hit the nail right on the head with the score. The only thing left to talk about is the lay it motif. And you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> nope. <laughs> That's not correct. <laughs> Oh shit! Do it I right. done fucked up. <laughs> Do it right. There it is. It shocks me how many fans out there still go back to the C H I C H I H A H A. Listen, motherfuckers, it's key 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 ma ma ma. And why is listen that? Listen to the listen to, because Manfredini took kill mommy. He took the kill. And made it kick, kick, kick. And he took the mommy. Ma, ma, ma. Very, you know, little samples. So, so simple. The, yeah. And that's what it is. And I know that in later later versions of the score, when they mix the music, when, when they add certain effects to it, it could possibly sound like. But it ain't motherfuckers. Get it right. Seriously. Anytime a page on social media, like a horror page does it wrong. I'm like. Yo, y'all don't you don't you don't deserve to have the horror title in your fucking oh, name. Seriously, you, you elitist. Uh, in some in, in some respect, yes, I do think very highly of myself. You already know this. I someday, hopefully, I can take that you know world title belt that says God of Podcasting and put it around my waist. Nope, not but happening. until then, not but happening. until then, I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll allow you to carry it around and pretend like you're champion. Um, but yeah, we've talked about pretty much everything other than the fact. This movie, it's the it's the first, I wouldn't say big role for Kevin Bacon because he had been in Animal House and John Landis's Animal House leading up to this. But he plays Jack in the film. Also, it's one of the most notable and brutal deaths in the entire film. You got to go down the line here. Um, and I have to say, rest in peace. Um, one of the kills on this list is the poor snake, the real snake that was decapitated with a machete in the film. Oh, God rest that snake soul back back in the day when, you know, animal rights people weren't on the set of movies such as this little low budget movies. And yes, a real snake was killed on the set. So I, I not something I like watching, honestly, to be completely clear. She was probably uh, just I, having a really great time. I, I'm just saying she probably just wanted re- a friend. When I rewatch the movie, I'm like, you know, it's just a small snake. Just throw it outside. You don't need to kill it. 
You don't need to try to explain it in half. It's like when I try to explain to my my kid and my wife. I'm like, dude, it's a spider. Yeah, I'm just going to toss it outside. I don't need to kill it. If that shit's venomous, that, then we're talking something different. But um, I think the original Friday the 13th uh, on the point scale automatically goes up super high for me because of the fact that nothing else like this had been done before it. So as far as an originator, it automatically has to get uh, a, a large point scale. Jack's death from underneath the bed, you know, I'm sure watching it in theaters and on VHS, it was a lot more realistic. But when you watch it now, obviously on Blu-ray and 4K TVs and 1080p, you can definitely see the rubber neck that he's sitting underneath the bed. But um the fact that an arrow goes up through his neck and then it's swirling around and blood is just like squirting out. Tell me when before that you saw something like that in a horror film ever. When the dude's just sitting there, just smoking weed, just chilling out. And it's Kevin fucking Bacon, for God's sakes. One of the most attractive, handsome men that ever walked this planet. That is one of the best kills in the entire franchise, Justin. And a big part of that, a big reason as to why these kills are so good, so effective, is because of Tom Savini and his wizardry when it comes to makeup effects, special effects, gore effects. Of course, the Kevin Bacon kill is arguably one of the most memorable kills in horror movie history. You also have uh, Annie, that famous throat slashing that she gets against the tree. Which... Is, is is extremely mean spirited because they hold the shot on her for you to feel the pain of the slit. It doesn't shy away. It doesn't, you know, the camera doesn't pan off. It zooms in on her. It's a close up. And that 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 effect still pretty much holds up. You can see the rubber appliance a little bit, but the way the blood just kind of pours out, that's exactly how it looks if you actually get your throat slit. The blood just kind of pours out really quickly like that. And it's extremely effective. Absolutely. Those those two kills add a lot of points for me. I think aside from Jack's kill, my favorite kill of the entire movie is Marcy getting hit in the face with an axe. Yep. Tom Savini set up that kill perfectly. Um, the man's a fucking genius. Let's face it. He should be doing more makeup effects in movies today. He said to add weight because they knew they were using an appliance and a fake axe and all that stuff to add weight. You see the axe hit the light, you know, the, the, the hanging light in the room in the cabin beforehand. So it, it gives the it gives the kill weight. So you notice that it's got full force momentum and the axe in the face. I mean, dude, it's so fucking brutal. And the way she sli- Marcy slides down the wall afterward with dead eyes, dude, I mean, I understand why Siskel and Ebert came out against this movie, which I know you want to get to in a few moments here when we wrap up this movie, because it's so fucking hard hitting. Well, like I can't even imagine seeing this in theaters for the first time. Well, the MPAA hadn't gotten their grubby little fingers all over these movies yet. This was still before they got their pair of scissors out and were cutting everything to within an inch of its life. Uh, so these kills are... Very, very, very well done. Very brutal. There's even a decapitation. Spoiler alert. Again, Pamela Voorhees gets her head chopped right off. And it's not the best effect. It doesn't hold up as well as the other effects. But by that point, you're having so much fun with the movie that you don't even care. 
I mean, imagine that money shot at the end being in the audience. How much of a crowd pleaser that must have been. I mean, I can only imagine. Even when I watch it now, I'm like, you wait. They do it in slow-mo. And then it happens and you're like, oh my God, all the high strings and everything and the hands coming up that, yes, are Tom Savini's assistant at the time. It's a guy. You know, it's it's not Betsy Palmer. And then, you know, the movie ends and you're like, oh man, it's all over with. Everything's fine. Everything's good. The comfortable music plays. And back to the genius that is Tom Savini, the idea of Jason appearing at the end of the film was not in the original script by Victor Miller at all. Um, They're trying to come up with like a surprise ending. Carrie basically created the surprise ending. All right. And up until that point, I was like, well, we need to do that. They needed, so, they needed an extra punch. So Savini has said, this is his quote exactly. The whole reason for the cliffhanger at the end was I had just seen Carrie. So we thought we need a chair jumper like that. And I said, let's bring in Jason. So like the whole movie is about her killing for her kid. Let's just make this kind of like a dream sequence, trick the audience into thinking everything is fine. and Everything's over with. And then he comes out of the lake. And I'm telling you right now, dude, when I showed this movie for the first time to my kid a few months ago on Friday the 13th, I waited and I told Danielle, my wife, be quiet. Don't say anything. Don't let her notice that we're talking. Just let the kill happen. She jumped. She fucking jumped. My kid jumped during the scene when Jason comes out of the lake. So, you know, it's still effective. It's a great jump scare at the end of the movie. Back when jump scares weren't really what you were trying to do. That wasn't the whole end game. It was just, you know, terrify your audience, scare them. But it's a perfect moment. And of course, a few minutes later, you realize, oh, that didn't happen. It's all in Alice's head. Or did it? Well, it is in her head. It's still effective either way. Uh, I, I guess they didn't want to leave the audience wondering if she survived or not. She did. It, that You know, it's okay. But you're still allowing people to catch their breath and get their heart rate back down after that amazing, amazing jump scare. But that's it. That's Friday the 13th. That's the original. It established the conventions of the slasher genre as we know it today. It has its slow patches. It's extremely, extremely slow patches, but it is influential. And there's plenty of memorable moments, great kills, good characters, what more could you ask for in a slasher movie, really? In in the originator, because let's make no mistake, and I like to say that all the time, John Carpenter's Halloween is a slasher at its core, but it's a little more prestigious. It's a little more classy. This is the movie that really created the slasher genre in American cinema the way that we think of it today, and we have Sean Cunningham's original Friday the 13th to thank for that. So I'm going to jump right in with my kill rating. I'm giving it eight out of 10 machetes. We had not seen anything like this leading up to this point outside of Italian Giallo films. And even then, you know, with Tom Savini's effects, him being in the war, seeing things that brutal and knowing kind of how to emulate that on screen and make it look as real as possible. Um, it's an originator. It's the one that set the bar. Everything that came out after it, had to live up to it. It's eight out of 10 machetes for me. Boy sauce. What did you have for your, your kill rating on this? And, and disclaimer, this is in relation to the other Friday, the 13th movies. 
This, so this is not out of 10 in terms of horror movies or slasher movies in general. This is just in context with the entire series. I'm going to go ahead and give it 9 out of 10 machetes just because of how memorable. One upper, yeah. Because of how memorable these these scenes are. I mean, they stick in your mind forever. And I'm going to be honest, very few other kills in the series do that for me. So as as much as this one doesn't necessarily have the replay value of some of the others, those kills they just stick in your mind and that's what makes that's what makes it one of the best we went overly long on this but you know what guys seriously we love you and uh we're all going through a really tough time right now with the covid and uh we just wanted to give you something to entertain you something to appreciate and something that we could all celebrate together it is the 40th anniversary of the beginning the start the one that created the slasher genre as we know it today, Halloween or not, Sean Cunningham's Friday the 13th. And we kind of battled back and forth on if we should just do the first film or if we should just kind of go through the other films we hadn't touched on yet. And we said, you know what? Our fans need us right now. Our friends need us right now. Let's give them something a little bit more special and and go out on a limb and put that time in there. We hope you guys enjoy it. So we decided to, Make the effort for you and it's uh, a party. Give you what it's you an extravaganza. That's right. Fuck yeah. Put those short shorts on. Pull out that fucking drink and that hockey mask and that machete. And when this episode releases, this is on the 40th anniversary itself of the original film. So pretend like you're back in 1980 and you're about to watch that movie. We there, there's there's a lot of fantasy going on right now when you're because we can't do anything. You can go to the grocery store. Uh, you can drink booze at home, but you can't really go anywhere. So you have to kind of live in a bubble in your own mind and with your family and your friends at home. It, this is it right here. So we we gave it to you. We hope you enjoyed it. Loisos, any final words for our listeners? If you want to check out more Epic Film Guys content, you can find us wherever podcasts are found. iTunes, Podbean, or our website, epicfilmguys.com. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Epic Film Guys. And if you want to be part of the conversation, join our Facebook fan group, The Hobster's Dumpster, facebook.com slash groups slash Epic Film Guys. We'd love to hear from you. And until our next B-side, which could be a number of different things, we have plenty of things up our sleeve. Um, we hope to hear from you soon. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And next week on the show is us back with hashtag Canon quarantine King Solomon's minds. And it's looking like you guys voted the next week's episode already. It looks like Ninja three, the domination might be winning. We'll see where we go with that one. But again, we love you. We thank you so much for supporting the show. Don't forget the live stream for the cures this month. Listen to the main show for all the full details and t-shirts are now available. So until next time, I'm Justin. And I'm Brian. And we'll see you at the movies. You're doing it wrong again. <laughs> oh my God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hold on, can I take that? One. There you go. There you go.